This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Is the pandemic wearing on you? Yeah, it's getting tired of the shutdowns, openings, and then shutdowns again. The vaccines, the shots are going into arms, but we're told still you got to mask up, you got to stay away from people, you got to stay home. What's the point of all the trouble to get the vaccines out there if a shot doesn't change anything? Or does it change everything? We'll look into the confused mixed messaging from the health officials that has a lot of people frustrated. The debate continues over the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines and how the doses should be distributed. And we'll talk about whether athletes should be given vaccine priority. Farm workers in California can now get vaccinated, but many probably won't, and we will explain why. We start with the mixed messages from the health officials and the government. Dr. Marcus Plesham, chief medical officer at the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials, and Ellen Peters, director of the Center for Science Communication Research, University of Oregon. So, doctor, let's start with you. Something wrong with the messaging throughout all this the last year? Well, you know, we've tried to be as clear as we can with messaging, and you know, the, the, the problem has been that we have very high rate, even now we still have very high rates of transmission of the disease. Um, and so, uh, you know, unfortunately it's a message that's, it, that, that's not popular with people. We're asking people to really change their behavior and to, you know, not be in situations that are social, which we all, we all crave social situations. Uh, so, you know, I think that's where some of the challenge has been, but it's it's a di- it's been a very difficult road we've been on trying to get the the COVID infection under control. And it's been hard all along, though, right? I mean, when we had the outdoor dining versus indoor and they were opened and closed, we went back and forth on that for a while. And also people who live on like the borders of counties are wondering why they can drive five minutes down the road and suddenly that county's open, but mine is not. We've done this with haircuts. We've done this with gyms. Is it just... Should the conversation have been, okay, everybody, this is an individual kind of thing. You got to stay safe. Go find one or two friends, form your bubble early on. That's how we do this. Not all of this back and forth all the time. Yes, I think that would be a very good message, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, the challenge <laughs> is that that's pretty restrictive. Ellen, uh, when it comes to vaccines, uh, there again, awful lot of confusion because earlier on, before there were vaccines, we were all told once there are vaccines, that'll be the light at the end of the tunnel. We'll all get out of this horrible pandemic. Then along come the vaccines. And of course, there's been issues in terms of distribution. But even getting them, there is further confusion because people don't know, well, can I now hang out with people who are also vaccinated? And if I can, do we have to watch how long after we were vaccinated? And can we have mixed company? And and again, I, I have to think that the messaging is not very clear in this because nobody seems to know. Yeah, it's, you know, we, we are in this really odd situation where we're in the middle of science being developed, which we are so not accustomed to. And, you know, we... With a vaccine, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we're not actually out of the tunnel yet. And the the idea behind um, having having um, additional measures that need to be taken, um, it, it's because the vaccines aren't perfect. The vaccines are all imperfect. They are phenomenal, but they are imperfect. Um, but because and because they're imperfect, you have a 20, 20 time, you're 20 times less likely, like with the Pfizer vaccine, you're 20 times less likely to get COVID, but you still can get it. And so that's the reason behind these other um, 
you know, the, these other health behaviors that, that we're hoping people will continue to take. Because if we can get people to vaccinate, they become as individuals 20 times less likely to get, to get the disease. But then as other people vaccinate, the whole infection rate in the population goes down. And at that point, once it really starts to go down, that's when we, we're out of the tunnel. We're just not quite yet when an individual person gets vaccinated. But individual people have questions. And let's take a case of grandparents, right? And we've done this a couple times, but they wonder, can I go and hug my grandkids? And some doctors say, oh, no, I don't think so. We can't mix groups yet. And others say, yes, of course you can. As long as the family's been safe, you're vaccinated. Go and see them. It's been so long. Um, just be as safe as you can because you got the vaccine. People are going to wonder what's the point of the vaccine if I still can't go see my grandkids. Yeah, and this is you know this is the issue we're having um, because people are getting conflicting guidance. They're getting mixed messages. Um, and they're getting confused. And when you confuse people, when you leave them uncertain about what to do, it gives them license to do what they want to do. And that that that's that's creating a problem for sure. Uh, so so I, so I think you're absolutely right that the those con, those mixed messages are 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 problematic. Uh, Dr. Plesher, let, let me go back to something that that Ellen Peters mentioned about how somebody who was vaccinated is twenty times less likely to get. COVID, because there again, there's a message issue here, I think, because uh, we've had lots of experts. We had a few on just yesterday on the show who point out that while all that is true in terms of the efficacy of these vaccines, that another thing is true, which is that all of these vaccines prevent uh, death pretty much 100 percent across the board, according to the trials and so far, according to the, uh, the real world experience. Shouldn't that be the message that's given then? Yes, I mean, I want to agree with, with, Dr., with what Dr. Peters just said. These are phenomenal vaccines. And, you know, we're, we're just moving into this phase where we're vaccinating people. And I think we're being very, very careful. But, you know, I'm also, I'm extremely optimistic. I mean, you know, we don't just have a vaccine, which is amazing. We have really good vaccines. And I do think that we're going to find the people are going to have a little bit more freedom once they've been vaccinated. Uh, you know, the guidance is going to come with that gradually. We're going to offer that guidance cautiously. People need to make their own decisions about, you know, if they want to continue to play it safe and be cautious. But these are good vaccines. And once you've been fully vaccinated, I do think you're going to be able to do things that you were, were more restricted than before. I do, for example, think if you're older and you want to finally see your grandchildren, you probably can. There are other things you're not gonna be able to do. You're not gonna be able to get on an airplane without a mask. That's just gonna be the way we're gonna be for a while. But yes, there's a benefit to the vaccine. And with time, we're gonna to have to convey to the public that they've gotten this vaccine and, and they, they can now begin to have a little bit more freedom than they used to. So let's see if we, let's take something that should and I'm putting the word should in, in very giant uh, quotation marks, should be simple, but let's see if it is. So uh, first you, Dr. Plesha, uh, 10 people, uh, senior citizens, all vaccinated fully. They've all had, if it's a two-shot one, they've had their second shot. It's a couple of weeks, the requisite couple of weeks after the second shot. Can they go indoors together as a group and have dinner, play cards, whatever they want to do without a mask? Well, you know, <laughs> the decision of what they can and can't do, I think people are going to have to make those decisions a little bit for themselves based on their level of comfort. But, you know, if they've had one of the current vaccines that are 95% effective, if they are um, 
you know, several weeks out from that, then their risk of doing that is much, much lower than it would have been. So, you know, they'll have to decide. But I think that, yes, most of us would think that that is now something that we're getting to a place that people are going to be able to do. Ellen? So I, I would think about this in terms of risk tolerance. What is, I, I would, as an individual, I think you want to think about what is your risk tolerance? And, and there's a great analogy to the stock market. Some people want to go put all of their wealth completely into stocks because the risk tolerance is super, super high. Other people prefer to keep it in the bank or in, or in bonds because their risk tolerance is very low. And that's the kind of situation that we're faced with here. There is risk remaining once you get a vaccine. It is far less uh, once you get the vaccine than when you don't get the vaccine. And what we need is we need leaders who are going to lead with evidence about this pandemic. They need to be transparent about what's known and not known, including providing these kinds of statistics that tell us where the uncertainty lies. Like th this idea that the vaccines are phenomenal, but they're imperfect. And, and this will just help us correct false facts and misinterpre misinterpretations, but it also helps us to avoid surprise, regret, and anger when the unexpected occurs. And somebody who went ahead out and took a risk after getting a vaccine, nonetheless got COVID because that will happen. It, they're, again, they're phenomenal, but they're imperfect in terms of the, the, the vaccines themselves. Right, Alan, I was going to say, I mean, I guess we can kind of think back to the way things used to be, right? And let's say we're in the middle of cold and flu season, and I obviously COVID is not the flu. This has been discussed a thousand times. Um, but you still hung out with your friends, and, and so did I, and you didn't think going into the group gathering, oh my gosh, I could uh, be down with the, with the cold or the flu for a few days because I, I hung out with them. If the vaccines guarantee me that I'm not going to die, and they mostly guarantee me I'm not going to the hospital, well then... Of course, I'm going to go see people if I know that the worst that's going to happen to me is just riding this out at home with Gatorade or Pedialyte and taking it easy because I got sick for, you know, three, four days. Yep, I, I would agree. And that's that's the kind of that that is the, the kind of choice that I would make, too. But I think some people might make different choices and we need to allow that. But I think we need to communicate those risks and communicate the idea that you want to think about it in terms of your own risk tolerance. I, I guess one of the things that concerns me, uh, uh, Dr. Plesha, uh, first you maybe in this one, is that because we've had such a, a, a terrible and, and rightly so scare uh, because of COVID, that we may be getting into, at least many of us, a mentality where when we evaluate risk, we, we want something to be zero risk. And in real life, nothing. I mean, nothing is zero risk, is it? No, you're right. Nothing is zero risk. Getting in your car and driving to the grocery store has a certain amount of risk that people sometimes underestimate. So we, we do have to be comfortable with that. I mean, we've, we've had a difficult time over the last year. And, you know, many people, particularly people who are older, who have risk factors are very, very scared. And that's, that's okay. And it's, so, you know, just because you get the vaccine does not mean you have to rush out and start doing all kinds of things you couldn't do before. If you want to be cautious, uh, you know, I, I think that's absolutely fine. And that, that probably is the best way forward. And I, I think what Dr. Peter said about, you know, defining your own level of risk tolerance, that's probably a very good way to look at this. Dr. Pleasure, before we go and, and run out of time here, thoughts on Texas, the governor there saying mask mandate is gone everything's open including indoor dining uh because we do have vaccines and it's going to get better go for it is it too early for that well you know the, there's there's new guidance coming out today and coming forward from centers for disease control centers for disease control is urging very very strongly that we do not roll back 
some of these mitigation efforts quickly. I mean, we, we are very concerned. The reductions we've seen in transmission are starting to level off and perhaps go back up. We have these variants out there that are very dangerous and scary and, you know, a case where COVID has become more infectious. So I'll just say, you know, the CDC is the national and probably the international expert on infectious disease. And I think we need to be I think we need, need to really pay attention to some of the very urgent guidance that's starting to come out from them about this situation. Dr. Marcus Pleasant, Chief Medical Officer, Association of States and Territorial Health Officials. Ellen Peters, Director of the Center for Science Communications Research, University of Oregon. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines require two doses. There's a debate in the medical world about whether the focus right now should be on rushing out the first doses, then worrying about the second dose later, or if it's best, to make sure those who get a first shot can get the second one in the necessary three to four week period. Dr. Fauci coming out against focusing on just the one dose. So Dr. John Moore, microbiologist, immunologist at Cornell Medical College. The so doctor looks like we're sticking to that two shot scenario. Yes, we are. And I think that's the right decision. There's been some discussions about this, but Tony Fauci and the other scientific leaders of the country, FDA officials, CDC staff, etc., are all rock solid on sticking to the FDA approved protocol. And there's good reasons for that. I completely support that strategy. Uh, The Brits are doing something very different. I think that's a mistake. I think they're gonna run into more and more problems over time, but I'm convinced that we're doing the right thing here in the States. Now, is part of that because of the expected uh, availability of vaccine. I, I, I'm just noting now, as, as Mike and I are, are, are talking to you, uh, President Biden is now saying that there will be, he says, enough vaccine for every adult, he's saying, by the end of May. Now, that's a lot earlier than he had said, I think, only, what, a few weeks ago? Yeah, Andy Slavitt, too, tweeting that out. Enough for 300 million Americans by the end of May. It's an acceleration of two months over the prior outlook. Okay, so so is that perhaps a key reason other than perhaps biological ones, which I do want to get into with you. But is that pretty much the the, the simplest reason that if we're going to have enough vaccines, according to the White House anyway, by the end of May, then then why not just stick to the way they're supposed to be given? Yeah, it's to simplify it because it reduces some of the pressure that some people are putting on to get vaccines into everyone's arms, even if we have a long delay before the second dose. You know, which we understand. I mean, it's not like we're, we're looking at that and going, no way, Jose, we need to. It's all data driven. It's information driven. Our, our positions on this are knowledge driven. But certainly it will make uh, life easier if, if the vaccine supply increases to an extent that everyone can be immunized by sometime in May or June. You know, projections are projections. But the early summer is uh, the kind of time frame that's being talked about now. Now, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, take us back to why it is two doses. We have the one, and it gives you actually a pretty good immunity, which is in the argument of just do the one dose. But then the second one comes in, boosts it by enough that it's substantial, or is it more of a, an issue of we don't know how long just that first shot will last time-wise? Maybe it only gives you a couple months. Sure, that's one factor. I mean, there are a number of factors here, some of which are, are more obvious to the public than the others. But After one dose of the mRNA vaccines, and there's most information now on those two vaccines, so I'm mostly going to discuss that. There's much less out there on J&J, and there's others that are not yet approved. But you get an antibody response to one dose of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. It's okay, but you get a boost uh, of 
30, 50 fold after the second dose. And the stronger it is, the longer it will last. And one reason why it's important is if variants do circulate that are have a degree of resistance to, to antibodies, and there are some that are known, the stronger your response, the more spare capacity you have to deal with those variants. So we know from lab studies that some of the more troubling variants just blow all the way past sera from one dose Pfizer and Moderna recipients. It's just not strong enough. It's a paper bag. But they're slowed down and or blocked completely in the lab by two-dose Pfizer and Moderna sera. And that's pretty clear. And it's been done in multiple studies. So the stronger the response, which is after two doses, the more protection you will have, not just against what's going around now, but what might be going around more in the coming months. So that's one key reason to have two doses. The other is sort of more subtle and it's harder to explain, but how do these resistant viruses emerge? Well, they emerge in people who have a, a, a weakish antibody response. If you're putting selection pressure on a virus to make it mutate, if you have a very weak antibody response, the, the virus doesn't notice. It carries on replicating in you. If you have a very strong response, it's flattened. It can't replicate. But if you have something in between, the virus notices and mutates to try and get around that antibody response. And that's huh. a scenario in which you have, which you may well have in under-vaccinated people who get infected. Yeah, that's why you give them both. Dr. John P. Moore, microbiologist, immunologist, Cornell Medical College, doctor out of time. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. And again, the news from the White House, president saying enough vaccine for, for all adult Americans by the end of May, a couple months earlier than anticipated. The 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo never happened, obviously. It was pushed back to this summer, but the games are still in jeopardy because of the pandemic. What if we made the athletes priorities, though, so they could compete for the vaccines. Is that fair? Dr. Arthur Kaplan is back with us, founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's School of Medicine. So, doctor, the Olympic Committee is urging athletes to get vaccinated, but also warning against cutting in line. So does that kind of give people wiggle room to just figure it out and do what they want? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you asked me something uh, to untie a knot that I don't know that I can do. That's a Pretty strange uh, mixed message there. But I think what they're trying to say is you may be eligible. Let's say you're a coach and you're older and you would be eligible. Let's say you're an athlete with some kind of chronic condition. Still could be an athlete that might make you eligible. So there may be room there to say, well, you're, you know, you're not disqualified because you're an athlete. But they don't want the perception being that people have shoved ahead of others more needy, more eligible to get to the Olympics. That's what they're trying to avoid. If they want to pull the Olympics off and make sure it happens, though, does everybody need to be vaccinated? And if then, I mean, do you consider the elite athlete the essential worker and move them up in the line just so we can have an Olympics? I guess there's plenty of arguments to be made as, as a reason to, to do this. Maybe we all need something nice to watch that brings us together. And if you've got to send out, I don't know, how big's your team? A few hundred athletes or something? Maybe that's just a few hundred vaccines. Is that really that big of a dent in the overall line? Yeah, you know, it's a good question because the Olympics actually is gigantic. It's not even the same as the NCAA Final Four, the NBA playoffs. You've got countries sending dozens of teams that are made up of dozens of athletes, coaches, trainers, nutritionists, and on and on it goes. 
it's a huge number of folks. I'm going to say 20,000 people as the athletes and their support staff, easy, maybe more. Coming in from all over the world, there may be outbreaks in plenty of places where there aren't vaccines or much of anything in the way of healthcare. So always a risk that a new strain or variant might be lugged along. And one other thing, Japan is a country that doesn't like vaccination. A lot of hesitancy, a lot of resistance, cultural reasons, historical reasons. But the fact is, they're going to be nervous about bringing these people in. So I'm going to say the only way to make this happen is to get those athletes and the uh, coaches and their support staff vaccinated. I don't, I don't think there's any other way to do it. There's an argument that I read uh, that goes along the following lines, that, that uh, athletes should be given, professional athletes it is, or at least ones that are engaged in, in high-profile uh, sports such as the Olympics, ought to be vaccinated if for no other reason than they provide mass entertainment for the population, and that's in and of itself a worthy cause, and so they deserve to jump ahead of the line. Yeah, I recognize that argument. I made it. So <laughs> Ah, okay. <laughs> so I'm the source of that argument. And what I said was this. Look, we've all been quarantined. We've all been isolated. Uh, it's been a rough, rough time. It may go on uh, for some time to come. And I think, yeah, we want to save lives. And yes, we want to prioritize the healthcare workforce. But at some point, you also look at quality of life. And high-profile athletic competitions, NBA championships, NFL, Super Bowl, the Olympics, I think you got to give some credit to just having something to enjoy, watch, divert ourselves, that sort of thing. So I would try to make an argument that va uh, vaccinating athletes and all their coaches and so on makes some sense. So wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait. So stop there. So why not then? Because this is what I thought about when I read that argument, which, yes, it, it was your argument now that I think about it. So what about actors? I mean, why not? Uh, they provide entertainment yeah. and quality of life for the public. So uh, we're sitting here, Mike and I, in the middle of Hollywood. Why not have every actor, regardless of age, get vaccinated because they provide entertainment to the masses? Yeah, I think you can make the case that for some movie sets, ought to be vaccinated. Some uh, Broadway shows, uh, maybe we're going to vaccinate. I, I'm, I'm okay with making that argument. I think that, uh, in a way, the public can speak up and say, I support it or I don't. But let's face it, the rollout of vaccines right now has been miserable, confused, and terrible, right? I mean, it's not going well. People don't know who comes next or they can't get an appointment, that sort of thing. So maybe instead of trying to compare the delivery guy to the grocery store clerk to the whatever we could say, we're going to do the athletes who go to uh, high visibility uh, performance things, some of the entertainment things they're going to get there. And then as vaccine supply expands, we won't be fighting with each other by the time the Olympics rolls around. You know what the issue will be? Are we going to let people go to the Olympics who refuse to take a vaccine? Arthur Kaplan, founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics, NYU's School of Medicine. Coming up after this short break, will fear keep farm workers from getting vaccinated? California is now letting farm workers get vaccinated, all farm workers, regardless of citizenship or immigration status. That last part could be a problem, though. People could skip the vaccine out of fear of being deported. Diana Tellefson Torres, executive director of the United Farm Workers Foundation, so, Diana, what more do we need to be doing to make sure that the workers do get vaccinated? 
it's clear that at the state level, the advocacy that we've done to ensure that farm workers were included in phase 1B tier 1 um, was acknowledged by the state. That said, what we're seeing at the local level is that different counties have had different systems. Some counties had triggered farm workers prioritization already, but most had not have not up until this point. So as the state is looking at centralizing the allocation and distribution of vaccines, it's critical that there be an an easy targeted way to be able to ensure that farm workers have access to vaccines in locations that are in the communities where they live um, at the work site and really ensure that those vaccination sites include times when farm workers are not at work given that many work six days a week, for instance. I would also say that you know, most farm workers also don't have as much digital literacy. So yes, that process to go online and sometimes, you know, taking a couple hours, a few hours, sometimes days to figure out whether you can get your appointment does not work for very vulnerable immigrant populations. So many farm worker organizations and the union um, are working to ensure that we are an intermediary to really help farm workers navigate that process. What do you say to those uh, who make the argument that while there is a uh, still a scarcity of corona vaccines, that people who might be in this country illegally uh, should not get a vaccine prior to a citizen? You know, our country needs to face the reality that there are individuals who are putting their lives at risk on the ground. Farm workers have always been essential, not just during the pandemic. And we really need to protect those who are nourishing this state and this nation who are willing to do that hard work. So first and foremost, first and foremost we need to make sure that we have a policy in place at the national level that allows farm workers the opportunity to earn legal status, to get an opportunity to not have to fear that they're going to be picked up by ICE at any given point, especially as farm workers have been terrorized by the last administration over the last four years. And so it's critically important that we remember that this is also an issue of food security at the national level. We have individuals who are professionals who know how to pick the strawberries that you're eating in the morning, the mushrooms that you're putting on your pizzas. This is not something that can be ignored. So we need a federal policy that makes sense, that is workable. And we need to ensure that we are providing the different protections and safety measures for farm workers on the ground. How much we need to vaccinate them, yeah. my goodness. How much of a problem is that fear though, that that if I go and get this, it's dangerous for me because you know I'm not here legally. Yeah, you know, this the UFW Foundation conducted a text message survey. Um, and over 10,000 farm workers who self-identified as farm workers responded. And three out of four farm workers said that they were very willing and able to get the vaccine as soon as it was made available to them. 
And so what we're hearing on the ground are many questions whether that barrier exists. Well, can I get it because I don't have legal status? Can I get it because I don't have insurance? The vast majority of farm workers do not have health insurances in this country. And so ensuring that we have the appropriate outreach and education on the ground where workers are at in their communities, at their workplaces to ensure that they understand that they and others understand that this is a public health issue. Every individual that resides in the state of California and Los Angeles County at the, at the federal level um, here in this nation, we need to ensure that everyone gets vaccinated. But first and foremost, we need to look at those who are already out at work, who are doing the essential work and who are at highest risk of dying from COVID-19. And a recent UCSF study um, showed that Latino food and ag workers had a 59% increase in death during the pandemic. So this is no joke. Farm workers are dying at high numbers and we need to ensure that we do everything possible to get the right information to them, to make the process easy so that they can access it and to make sure that the state of California and that the federal government does everything possible to allocate vaccines specifically to their to this very vulnerable population. Diana Tellison Torres, Executive Director, United Farm Workers Foundation. Diana, thanks. People stuck at home are apparently finding things to do other than making babies. Provisional birth rate data by 27 state health departments shows a more than 7% decline in births in December. That would be nine months after COVID was declared a pandemic. California reported a more than 10% decline in December compared to the year before. The Brookings Institution speculated in June about a baby bust rather than baby boom. It said the pandemic would lead to 300 to 500,000 fewer births in 2021 citing tremendous economic loss, uncertainty, and insecurity. We're on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.